Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Volts for April 1st, 2022. Volts podcast. Audrey Shulman and Zainab Magavi on how to replace natural gas with renewable heat. I am your host, David Roberts. As I said in the previous episode, I'm doing a series of podcasts on clever ways to rapidly and substantially reduce demand for oil and gas, if not for the climate, then at least to reduce dependence on Russia. Today, we're talking about heat. Specifically, we're talking about the nearly half of U.S. homes that are heated by natural gas, the natural gas utilities that supply it, and what those utilities might be able to do instead of pumping an explosive fossil fuel beneath American streets. Today's guests have developed a visionary solution for America's sprawling natural gas infrastructure. In short, they want to replace it with networked geothermal, or water pipes, that carry heat harvested from the ground. It's called the GeoGrid, who's developed by the Heat Coalition, that's Home Energy Efficiency Team Coalition, run by Audrey Shulman and Zainab Magavi. Shulman is a longtime activist and policy entrepreneur uh, and novelist. Magavi is a researcher and a guest lecturer at the Harvard School of Public Health and a karate black belt. Together, they have spent years researching, developing, and evangelizing for the GeoGrid. They have done statewide feasibility studies in their home state of Massachusetts, hosted design charrettes and community meetings, and had endless consultations with utilities. They have often been ignored or dismissed by the old boys network in the energy world, but they have persisted, and their idea is now being put into place with extremely promising results. The technology is not new or untested. Many college campuses are heated with ground source heat pumps. But heat has got utilities thinking about it in a more systemic way, planning how to build geogrids targeted to best avoid spending on additional natural gas infrastructure. I'm excited to talk to Shulman and Mugabe about why something like geogrids are needed, how they are designed and constructed, and where we might see them being built in coming years. So, without further ado, Audrey Shulman and Zainab Mugavi, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. This is Audrey. <laughs> and and this is Zainab, and, and I'm delighted to talk to you, David. I'm so excited by the work you guys are doing. This is just the coolest idea. I'm very geeked out about it. Before we jump into the GeoGrid and how it's going to work and how it's going to be built and all that, let's take just a moment at least to talk about current natural gas infrastructure and why it is unsustainable. I know we could easily do a podcast just on that. We could probably do several, <laughs> but uh, let's just try to summarize it just by way of sort of background here up front. So Audrey, I know that for years, even before the GeoGrid thing, you have been involved in and testing natural gas infrastructure for leaks and, you know, being horrified at what you find. So why don't you start? Um, there are a number of reasons why natural gas has got to go, but tell us about why the current natural gas infrastructure situation is sort of reaching a breaking point. Back in, I think, 2014, maybe, there was a single study that was published in the Boston Globe showing that the amount of gas leaked in just Boston alone from the distribution system, from the pipes under the ground, uh, because the pipes here are so uh, you know, old mm. and leaky, uh, basically erases our state's efficiency goals and work. The entire state's uh, efficiency. 
Yes, the entire state's efficiency goals. And, and in Massachusetts, it's the efficiency program is one of the best in the country. Right. So uh, basically, all the work we're doing is being erased by these very small gas leaks because gas is such a potent greenhouse gas. So at HEAT, we started mapping those gas leaks using utility-reported data and uh, quickly realized that this is uh, a system we have to get off of, that we can triage the system, but it's best to transition now, especially given all of the uh, aging infrastructure, the gas infrastructure that's being replaced. You know, this brings us to a point where we come with natural gas infrastructure a lot, which is this sort of tension between spending to repair it and spending to build more of it. And then with our other hand, saying that we're going to decarbonize. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so how long do natural gas infrastructure assets typically last? Like what, are, what is the time horizon of these investments we're talking about? There are you know, pipes in the ground here in the Boston area that date back to President Lincoln. <laughs> uh, and they're still being used. So the infrastructure, some of it can last for an enormously long time, but like any old infrastructure, over time, it tends to, you know, erode somewhat. And, you know, we can get super technical, but all the cast iron mains, they were uh, sealed with jute, which is a grass fiber. And most of that grass fiber has dried out over the years, mm -hmm. uh, especially as we move to a different type of gas towards, you know, what's called natural gas. And so all that jute is dried out and the cast iron mains are leaking every 12 feet at every joint. Um, and that's, that's a problem. So what would be required to stop all those leaks, to repair all those leaks? Like what is the scale and uh, like the time scale and money scale of that investment? And is it being done? Is it being contemplated? Like are they being repaired right now? In Massachusetts, there's over 14,000 gas leaks reported every year on the books. You know, the more than that are repaired, but those are the ones that are reported in addition that are left. And the gas utilities, uh, you know, in their plan to get rid of the, the majority of those, want to replace the pipes. Mm. Um, and there's been a report by the Gas Leak Allies, which is a coalition here in Massachusetts of researchers and advocates, showing that that replacement over the next 20 years will cost over $20 billion with a B, mm. which brings it to the size of, you know, in terms of economics, <laughs> of the big dig here in Boston, where we, you know, sunk a major highway artery underneath the entire city. And from that, we had all these things we wanted, right? We had the highway underground, we had a beautiful park, we had a way to get out to the airport really quickly. But now... <laughs> At the end of this 20-year replacement of gas infrastructure with new fossil fuel infrastructure, which will last an enormously long time and will be paid off by the gas customers over at least 50 years, we don't know if those assets will be used and useful. We don't know because we've got a net zero emissions mandate here in uh, Massachusetts. It's on the books now that you're going for net zero. What's the target? Uh, 2050. Net zero by 2050. And in Massachusetts, <laughs> that's, you know, if we're, if we're going to be replacing all the gas, you know, the, the approximately 20% of the gas infrastructure for that cost of $20 billion, that work will not be completed until around 2040, I think, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and then it gets paid off over the following 50 years. That's crazy. 
it totally is crazy. And I just want to call attention to the complexity of it, though, because the leaks are clearly a climate problem with, mm. with methane, you know, 84 times in the first 20 years in the atmosphere, 84 times carbon dioxide. But also some of these older pipes are a safety hazard. And so when we look at this aging infrastructure and our whole community and many other aging infrastructure cities across the country realize this problem, there are really three ways to fix it. So you can repair leaks and attempt to, you know, kind of stem the bleeding triage. Mm -hmm. You can replace the infrastructure and therefore address the safety as well. Or the third is really where we're trying to move us towards, which is transition. Like, let's not put in last century's infrastructure. Let's put in infrastructure for the next century. Right. Backing up to that triage, actually in Massachusetts, that was the first way that heat got involved after Audrey mapped the gas leaks. We actually figured out a way to uh, identify the largest volume leaks. Um, And since just 7% of the leaks were 50% of the emissions in our distribution system, we have a program in place now, law and regulation, um, a couple years in to find those largest leaks and cut our methane emissions from the distribution pipes in half fast. So, but the, the bigger the bigger picture here is, and this is something that is not unique to Massachusetts, it's it's not unique to America. It's kind of a global uh, a, a global vexation right now, which is replacing fossil fuel infrastructure to the tune of many, many billions of dollars, completing that job <laughs> less than a decade before you claim that you're not going to be using fossil fuels anymore. So so either you are, purposefully building a boatload of assets that you know are going to be stranded yep. or you're lying about your greenhouse gas target, right? Like those yep. two, you can't do, go forward with both of those things, but yet people are all over the world doing both at the same time, proclaiming decarbonization and building this long lasting infrastructure. So the one other thing I wanted to touch on, on the, like the, you could say the process is underway to get Americans off of natural gas, but the way it's proceeding, which is sort of unplanned and haphazard, has some equity implications. Uh, Zainab, maybe you could jump in there and talk about why sort of the the current haphazard transition away from natural gas is so sort of um, ethically dubious. Yeah. I mean, it's ethically sound to transition off natural gas. Um, our, Our current plan in many locations is to do it building by building or customer by customer um, with an individual solution, an individual air source heat pump, ground source heat pump. And, you know, I'm never going to say that's not wonderful. However, (laughs) when it comes down to the fixed cost of of a gas system infrastructure, the gas system's fixed cost, if you pluck customers off throughout the system over time, the fixed cost doesn't disappear. Right. And the remaining customers who are most likely to be those without means to invest in an air source heat pump or ground source heat pump or without control over their building like a renter, those people will face rising, steeply rising, <laughs> exponentially rising gas prices and heating bills. And, and that is really the opposite direction of the way we want to go in terms of energy equity. Yeah, this is uh, another 
very familiar problem, <laughs> you know, electrical utilities and natural gas utilities. It's called the, you know, the, the so-called death spiral. Yeah. If you, if you just pluck customers out one at a time, the remaining customers are paying the freight and the more freight they pay, the more incentive they have to bail on the grid. And so you're almost setting up a system where it is systemically taking like the wealthiest customers off the grid. You know what I mean? It's almost yeah. systemically concentrating costs on the poorest ratepayers, yeah. which obviously can't. It's another thing that just it can't go on mathematically. It can't go on forever. And yet it's just it's just going on. So before we talk about your, your all's idea to, to sort of cut through this Gordian knot, I'm sort of curious, like, what's the other plan? Like, it's, it's <laughs> like Massachusetts has these, these ambitious decarbonization goals. What is the current thinking for how they transition off of natural gas? Is there any? Yeah, it's funny you asked and Audrey to chime in um, because we, we in Massachusetts, and there are several other states in this process as well, have a um, future of gas planning process in our regulatory system. Mm-hmm. In Massachusetts, it's, it's the fascinating name called 2080. But um, <laughs> it, it, they just the gas utilities collectively just filed a report and their individual plans for decarbonization to meet the state's goals. And they are a menu of options. Uh, there is a lot of effort to project RNG, SNG, and hydrogen as potential justifications for the gas distribution system. Right. And just pausing for listeners' benefit here, that's renewable natural gas and synthetic natural gas. Yeah. Renewable, I think, is from biological sources like um, landfills and stuff. Yep. So, so different forms of, of gas, basically, and hydrogen sort yes. of fits the same thing. So tr- just pumping some other gas through the same pipes. Right. And that's partly because um, they are allowed only, to, you know, gas utilities are legally allowed to sell gas <laughs> and, so, and nothing else. So they are searching. If they can't sell the conventional natural gas, they're searching for different gases that might be, uh, you know, more appealing to, you know, the regulators. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we hope to do is to allow them to instead become thermal utilities where they're selling right. heat and, you know, heating and cooling. And that would be a, a way for them to continue their businesses um, with all their workers and with the low-income customers and the renters who cannot get off the system easily, mm-hmm. um, well, uh, you know, meeting our emissions mandates to allow our children and grandchildren a place to live. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just worth saying here quickly that if you do the math on these other gases, it's just not really practical. No. There's not enough RNG or SNG to cover natural gas. Hydrogen requires different, or at the very least, very um, renovated infrastructure. And we're a long way from that. So it's it, it's just a weird situation. Like it, 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 what, it's what I'm trying to get at over and over. It's a weird situation where we're saying we're decarbonizing. And then we have these fossil fuel utilities that literally only their business model is to sell fossil fuels. And we're asking them like, Tell us how you're going to join this transition. And <laughs> the only, like the honest answer is, well, we're going to 
slowly shrink and die (laughs) and not be there anymore. They can't say that they, you know, they have investors or or they just have pride. So it's just this weird split consciousness about natural gas all the, all the way up and down and sort of your uh, idea, this geogrid idea is the first idea I've ever heard really that cuts through that, that, (laughs) that offers some way out of that weird sort of cul-de-sac that natural gas utilities are stuck in. So all that said, let's talk about the geogrid. Um, maybe just give me your capsule summary of what is a geogrid and what would it look like to take, say, you know, a few blocks of residential area that are currently served by natural gas and replace the natural gas infrastructure with a geogrid. So how, how does it work? So initially, you could install this on a, a single block. It's basically a shared water loop in the gas company right of way with a supply and return loop to each customer building and a closed loop vertical borehole array in, again, the right of way, which is attached to that shared loop and can be accessed as a thermal source and sink. Right. So, so how these, these, these boreholes, these are just, you know, vertically down. What is it? How many, how many feet down do they, do they go? So in, in the geothermal world, these are shallow, right? So 100 to 500 feet, roughly, depending on your energy load and your bedrock, et cetera. And they're, they're just six inches wide. These are, are little little things for, the, for that geothermal world. And of course, the word geothermal is used for so many different technologies. What we're really talking about is a ground heat exchanger with ground source heat pumps. Technically, no one cares about this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I learned it and I'm by God going to share it. So <laughs> geothermal heat technically is produced by radioactive decay in the Earth's core. The heat in the shallow earth that we're talking about, the sort of uh, 100 to 500 feet, that heat is actually stored heat from the sun. So it's technically not geothermal heat, but everybody, as you say, just uses geothermal for everything having to do with the earth, (laughs) you know, the dirt. So, so it's, it's probably good enough for government work, but technically these are ground source heat pumps. So these boreholes, just so listeners can imagine, sort of envision them, they're just a little pipe goes down 100 to 500 feet down into the earth, basically the water picks up the heat mm-hmm. <laughs> from that depth, and then it carries it back up to the main loop yep. that's going uh, under the street. Right, because the the temperature of the ground in you know is mostly in the fifties, which is the ideal sort of temperature to keep heat pumps very happy. They work at their greatest efficiency in that range. You know, so it's much better than, for instance, air source heat pumps, which are lovely on their own. I don't want to cast dispersions, but air source heat pumps have to deal with the difficulty of the air temperature varying so much. Right. So that when you need them the most is when the temperature of the air is either 100 degrees or zero degrees. And that's when it's hardest to pull the temperature out that you want in your, you know, home or business. Right. And the beauty of the shallow earth is that it is always basically the same temperature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually the largest battery we have on Earth, the actual Earth, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So just a physical question. The loops under the street are just carrying water and occasionally dipping down into these boreholes to pick up more heat. Mm-hmm. The actual 
heat pumps that extract the heat from the water are located, what, in each individual house? Yes, in each, in each unit. So, you know, and that could be homes or businesses. And the best possible thing is if you have both homes and businesses on the same uh, loop, so that, you know, on that same street, street segment or area, so that you can, you know, for instance, the supermarket might be pulling cold off for all of its fridges and returning the water hotter. And that heat could then go to the homes down the street or, you know, same with an ice rink or a data center, et cetera. Right. And that, that temperature that Audrey mentioned, you know, the ground being a constant temperature, it's referred to sometimes as an ambient temperature range. The water in the loop is going to be maintained within a range that is great for the heat pumps in the customer buildings. And the piece of this infrastructure that's interesting and different is it requires a utility to manage it, especially as you do the next block and the next block and begin to interconnect them. Um, and you have a growing thermal grid with the need for a thermal management utility. Right. And if that temperature in the loop starts to drift out of the window, that, you know, the design window, the thermal utility can bring a thermal asset or source or sink onto the system. So maybe there's a borehole field that they have off in the spring. And as the temperature rises outside, they bring that asset on, turn it on when needed, if that makes sense. So like with any network, you get more steadiness and balance and predictability and stability the larger your network is basically mm -hmm. the more yes. sort of varied kinds of loads you bring on. But just w one more physical question, because I want to get this clear in my head. Like from my point of view, if I'm a homeowner, if I have my own ground source heat pump, it's a unit in the basement or wherever connected to pipes that run underneath my yard. Yeah. If I'm on a geo grid, I still have the same unit, like from my perspective, from my experiential perspective, it's not that different. I still have the same unit in my basement. It's just connected to pipes that now run beneath the entire block, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So it's like a giant shared, the, the pipes are all shared. The ground source heat pumps are, are in the individual buildings. Yeah, it's the utility model, right? So yeah. the great part is that the utility pays for all that infrastructure because you know, ground source have heat pumps have been around for a while, but they require a pretty big upfront investment. Right. Yes. Notoriously, uh, you know, I looked into this for a post in Vox a while back. And as far as I know, in terms of individual heating solutions, ground source heat pumps are the most efficient way of heating a house. Yeah. So I can imagine then if you, if your ground source heat pump is drawing from a, a network of water pipes, that's, <laughs> that's, you know, several city blocks, it's even more efficient. Yeah. We get some exciting efficiency gains by networking. And sometimes we, we say, Oh, you know, one computer is pretty awesome, but look what happened when we networked computers, the right. internet, some interesting properties emerged. So like Audrey said earlier, if you have mixed use on the same network, what you're actually, you, you can call it waste thermal recapture or mm -hmm. energy sharing. There's all kinds of ways to name it, but you've got a building that's using cooling and rejecting heat into the system and another building that's using that heat and rejecting cooling. Those two are canceling each other out. You've got synchronous load cancellation. 
Right. And it's, it's, this is not unfamiliar, really, from like the talk about how to make distributed electricity grids work better, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody's contributing, everybody's consuming, and the more people you have on it, the more sort of balanced the whole thing is. Exactly. Yeah, the bigger the system, the, the better. Because then, you know, it can be sized, uh, as uh, Zainab will say, for, you know, stochastic load. So you're not adding up all the total peak hours, <laughs> but, in, you know, the aggregated sum of the use. Right. But instead, you can figure out statistically, what's the chance in, you know, a thousand buildings that every one of them is going to be asking for all of the heat, you know, the peak heat at the same moment or the peak cooling at the same moment. And uh, it's zero or very close to zero. So then you can just decrease the infrastructure needed in all of those buildings. Right. You don't have to overbuild your infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. And this is um, just because I know people are curious about this. You know, there's all this dispute over whether air, air source heat pumps can, can they handle the super cold? Can they handle any climate? Once you have ground source heat pumps and uh, several city blocks of networked pipes, is there any temperature extreme that they couldn't handle? Would there be any need for any of these units to have backup sources of heating or cooling? No, no. The beauty of a interconnected system is if you're really anxious about it, for whatever reason, you can put the backup on the loop in one location. Ah, right. But, you know, there isn't a need. Uh, and in fact, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, a cold climate heat pump for a, a new design building is absolutely doable. And for a lot of our old New England building infrastructure, you got to do a lot of work on the building to get it to the point where it's reasonable. But that is not necessarily necessary. Obviously, you always want to do energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is heat's middle name. But if you have a unique building, you can can cover the load with this. So this is not, uh, the, the applicability here is not restricted no. By, by climate. You could do this anywhere. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, let's just say real quick, because I know probably some listeners are familiar with district heating systems, which are very common in Europe. Let's just say a quick word about how this is different from those. So district systems are, you know, generally uh, there's one central plant that is uh, generating, you know, if we're talking geothermal, there's one really deep borehole (laughs) that's generating the heat you want. And in this case, what we're doing instead is distributing the boreholes everywhere, everywhere in the right of way of the street. And one plus about that is that there's nobody at the end of the line who's going to get the last dregs of heating or cooling, right? right. It's, It's everywhere. So, so that's some of the differences. And that makes it more resilient. But I just want to clarify, and this is where that word geothermal gets messy, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of district system with a deep borehole, that's a deep borehole that's getting direct use hot water from the earth, not capturing that stored solar energy of our near bedrock, right? Right. Those are actual geothermal. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And and so there's there's some great installs all around the world. And in Europe, they've got this whole naming system, uh, first generation, second generation, third generation, fourth generation for their district energy systems. And interestingly, some folks in Europe have now been evolving towards a fifth generation, which starts to take on that distributed heat pump ambient loop characteristics Mm. that we're proposing here as well. This idea is not just taking off here. 
Ah, so, you know, in a, in a district heating system, basically you'd have one main source of heat and then the network distributes the heat. But in your system, you have basically dozens, depending on the size, you have these not as intense heat, but way, way, way more sources. And so, you know, in, intuitively, I think people would look at that and say, well, it just seems like it would be cheaper to dig one big hole than a bunch of holes. So like, what is the, how should we think about the cost of this? It sounds expensive, but uh, you know, what do I know? Well, the first part of that is that there isn't always an easy one big hole direct use hot water source. Yes, right? very true. It is, it is location dependent. The second part of it is that if you do that direct hot water source, you're pumping hot water around in a district, you are not doing an ambient loop that is also providing simultaneously cooling and heating. So you don't get as easily that energy sharing or simultaneous load cancellation. Um, and that's a really significant loss in terms of the overall system's energy efficiency. Ah, right. The sharing of heat, basically, the sharing of heat uh, among and between buildings is only possible here. Yeah, here in, you know, I always think of the U.S. as sort of the Saudi Arabia of energy waste. (laughs) Um, And through the system, we can reuse that energy waste so that we're each you know, reducing waste. I love it. <laughs> yes. I think about, I think about this a lot because I, I did a post a while back on, on uh, Amazon in downtown Seattle, reusing the heat from one of their data centers to heat yes. uh, nearby yes. buildings. And I, I read a lot about data centers and it's, it's a little bit wild, like dealing with waste heat, like getting rid of it is one of the big cost centers yes. for data centers. They spend a lot of money building systems that vent enormous amounts of heat into the atmosphere. <laughs> and we, we don't pay attention much sometimes to all the waste thermal in our environments. There's actually a cool London heat map um, that, that tried to map all that waste heat, all the data centers and other sources. But by building a thermal network, a geogrid, we basically create a thermal market. And that data center, instead of having to pay to dispose of its heat, if there is a heating need in that region, they can actually get paid for their heat. Right. So to every building hooked up to one of these geogrids, waste heat goes from a cost to a revenue source, basically. Yes, it it can. It's going to depend on how this future thermal grid ranges its billing. (laughs) Right. In our utopian vision. Exactly. <laughs> the, one, the one final thing I wanted to point out, uh, the, the physical characteristic of these systems, which I found really intriguing, is, as you say, they're like Legos. They're quite modular. It's so they can you can do this, I mean, at the smallest scale, I imagine, like a, what, a city block? Uh, yeah. Uh, an individual city block. So talk a little bit about what advantages you can get from modularity in terms of sort of how to approach where to build them. So what my vision is, and, and Zainab's, is is the idea of the gas infrastructure sh- sort of as a giant tree spread out across the state or whatever, whatever territory it is. And what we want to do is replace the distal ends of that infrastructure, of that, that tree, you know, graft onto the tree, the geo grid, you know, and modular bits interconnecting mm-hmm. over time. 
so that we give everybody, you know, the gas utilities time to become thermal management utilities where they're moving the wasted uh, thermal energy from one site to the other and learning how to balance it and getting the customers used to this concept too so that we can all buy in and the system can be de-risked as we decarbonize the entire system over time. Also, I just want to acknowledge that um, that idea of the gas system as a tree actually came directly from a tree physiologist, Dr. Nathan Phillips at BU, who um, imagined the gas system as a tree and attempted to think of how we were going to prune the tree. I want to mention that the the design of this geogrid, even at the block level, the geo-block level, with that ambient bidirectional loop allows us not just to have an incremental growth model uh, allowing that gas to geogrid infrastructure evolution, it also allows us to be really agile in response to a changing climate, in response to changing energy use intensities on your block or your in your city by adding, subtracting sinks or sources in a incremental way over time. Right. So the idea is you start building these out at the edge of the tree, at the, <laughs> at the tips, pruning the tree back, getting people used to it, learning how these things work. Mm-hmm. And then you slowly work your way down all the way to the trunk until the whole tree is replaced, is, is, is the idea. And to acknowledge there are some industrial um, gas users who, who we don't have an electrification um, solution for. You know, if you think glass smelter. Right. Um, and for those gas customers, you know, to me, that is an appropriate use of the more expensive and smaller supply RNG, for example, or a green hydrogen. So how much how much of the natural gas infrastructure would you have to keep in place if you had pruned your way down to only those customers needing natural gas? It's, you- it's not clear that you would necessarily keep the infrastructure in place. I think that would be locationally dependent. If you have a large cluster of, the, of such industrial use, then mm-hmm. that would make sense. Um, if you have one or two, you do on site, I assume. But I, I don't think we figured that out. I think we need to build some really interesting models and, right. and really map this out. It would depend a lot on the financial viability, you know, not only the fact that some industrial users will have to, you know, potentially go to RNG or green hydrogen made on site, um, if that is the best way forward, but that there would also be, you know, financial viability in some places where because of, you know, the hydrogeology or whatever, the that site would not be financially viable for the geogrid. And in those cases, there would be air source heat pumps you know, installed instead. But for gas utilities, we believe this might even increase their business model because there might be a lot of, you know, towns where they can't get a gas pipeline out there uh, Mm. because nobody wants uh, a gas pipeline, you know, cutting through their neighborhood, a transmission one. And so instead, you know, they wouldn't need the gas. They could just build the system there and use the ground under their feet uh, to provide the temperature that they need. Right. So, I think now physically I've got my head wrapped around this. Basically, it's just you got ground source heat pumps in every building connected to this lattice network of pipes pumping water, which have boreholes every whatever 100 feet or so collecting or getting rid of heat 
and you've got the ability to share and balance just as you would with electricity. If, you know, people creating excess heat, people need more heat. The more you've got connected to this network, the more balancing you get and the more costs become stable and predictable and low. That's the idea physically, which all makes 100% sense to me. And then I think about existing natural gas utilities and things get a lot more complicated. So a couple of questions. One would, if I, just a particular block, say I want to do this on a particular block, what are the requirements? What's the sort of order of operations? Do I first have to get every building in that block to be willing to stop using natural gas? Like they all have to say, okay, you can cut off our natural gas stoves. And and uh, in addition to our furnaces, you're trying to get rid of natural gas infrastructure. You're not just getting rid of their natural gas heat. You're getting rid of all natural gas. So what are the homeowners, I guess, or building owners role in this? And how capable are they of stopping it all if they decide to be difficult? I think that's that's a really critical question, and partly we have to do the experiment. However, I have some good news for this one. Uh, <laughs> one of the first um, installations going in in Massachusetts, gas utility led, um, and I just love saying a gas utility transition off gas. Um, <laughs> so, what are we? What are we going to call the? Are we going to call them thermal utilities? Is that what I, we're? I think that makes so much more sense from like a physical energy perspective, like gas, air is a gas. We don't think they're supposed to sell air. Right. (laughs) So they sell thermal energy. So the gas salespeople for the utility were retrained to sell this geogrid network to ground source heat pump. And they went out in this site and knocked on doors and uh, attempted to sign up customers. And the report is that they had some of the best sales days of their lives um, and got a, a dramatically higher uptake and within two days had more customers than they needed. They had an incredibly positive response and it was a very blue collar community. Mm-hmm. And to, to back up a second, because I guess we didn't cover this yet, um, the gas utility, you know, Eversource first requested permission from the state regulators to be able to install this sort of demonstration installation and got approved to do so. And National Grid, which is the other large gas utility here in Massachusetts, also did the same. And they were also approved. So it's it's sort of amazing that these gas utilities are both trying out a method forward to decarbonize the system. And our hope is, since we've had several economic briefs on it, analysis on it, that in the end, the cost uh, for heating and cooling will be lower for the customers. We cannot, of course, state that for sure. The regulators have to make that decision. But three different economic analyses have shown that it is likely to reduce the customer energy bill as well as to provide cooling. That's two big wins. Yeah, the addition of cooling is a real, that's a, that's a, that's a real bonus. But I don't know if we really answered your earlier question, which was, you know, do you have to convince everyone on the street in order to... Yeah, this is, the, this is what I keep trying to get at. It yeah. seems like an all or nothing thing. It seems like you're either yanking out infrastructure on one block and replacing it with another. You can't do like a hybrid of two infrastructures, can you? No, that would, that would be foolish, right? Because <laughs> you, you would then have what 
fraction of, of use on the gas system, again, that fixed infrastructure cost right. and the need for operations maintenance. So there's a real difference between these initial installations and demonstrations that are de-risking the process for everyone and what you would actually do in the full transition. Mm. And in my mind, if we legally redefine a gas utility as a thermal utility, thus they have permission to move forward with this business model and make it an equivalent uh, service. So an obligation to serve your customers, this is simply a thermal service upgrade. We are going from outdated 1800s thermal to modern thermal. The costs go down, you get better health benefits and bonus, it happens to be good for the climate. And I imagine like you'd have salespeople go out in the future, knock on doors, put the flyers, say your street is targeted for a thermal upgrade. We will be providing a heat pump. We'd like to assess, you know, your uh, pipe coming into your house or something like that, right? Well, I'm just imagining the one cranky boomer (laughs) at the end of the street who loves the character of his, you know, natural gas stove or whatever. If one homeowner says no, do they thereby veto an entire block of this thing? Like, that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, what? how do you... I think economically, they'll probably end up, uh, you know, if they really love that gas flame, which seems <laughs> unlikely because of all the, you know, health impact information that's, you know, seems to be coming out these days uh, around indoor combustion, that they might not want it anymore. But if they do, it would cost them to stay on the gas system, you know, several hundred dollars, uh, you know, a year just to use that one gas stove, if not more. Um, so economically, they'll probably go to like a propane tank uh, mm. that they that they keep for that one person on the street. <laughs> so this is not the kind of thing like electricity transmission lines where one intransigent landowner or homeowner can stop the whole thing. Or you at least think there's a way around that? Yeah, there there is a way around that. As long as our laws and regulations permit it, we can actually accommodate the individual choice, even as we do what's best for the utility scale, cost and safety. Right. So let's talk about the utilities and their sort of attitude about this. Like, you know, I guess I'm like a lot of sort of climate people have just kind of settled into this attitude of opposition to natural gas utilities, just kind of assuming they're they're going to be fighting this rearguard effort against reform forever because they're existentially on the line. This gives them a way to survive. Is it compelling to them? I mean, you've talked at least two into building test sites, right? So they must be at least open to it. Can you pitch them and say that you will be making at least as much money for your investors as you were before? Or is this going to be a shrunken business in some way? Or sort of like, what's the what's the story to utilities? Yeah. Here? So first of all, I just want to comment that at Heat, we try to do our best to blame the system and not the human beings within the system. <laughs> right. And to that end, um, you're better people than me. Well, no, not every day. <laughs> but uh, to that end, working with the system we have, it turns out that the higher infrastructure cost of the geo grid going in, um, in comparison to a new gas pipe going in, 
actually means that you have um, a larger asset acquisition opportunity for the gas utility that's now a thermal utility. And like Audrey said, a business model expansion, not just into cooling, but also into areas of gas capacity constraint. Mm. And so as far as business models go, this looks like a real growth model for the gas utility. Because mm-hmm. gas utilities don't get paid by how much they how much gas they sell. They get paid actually for, you know, the profit comes from capital expenditures. So when they install new infrastructure, when they buy new trucks, when they, you know, make a new uh, facility. And so this is a way for them to do more capital expenditures while reducing potentially the customer cost and providing that cooling too. But you say it is more expensive to put one of these in place for a given block than it would be to put in place natural gas infrastructure. What is the delta there? Is that a big difference? In in the feasibility study that Bureau Happel did for Massachusetts, um, technical and economic feasibility study, um, we got results that showed about a 1.6, 60% more. Mm -hmm. Um, And the beauty of it is, okay, so you've got this higher infrastructure investment, but because you are no longer on the customer bill, including the cost of gas, right? even though you're paying an increase in the cost of infrastructure, as um, mentioned, all of the economic predictions show the feasibility of the total customer bill actually being lower. So you've got this economic benefit to the utilities and an economic benefit to the customer in a steel for fuel like model, like the Cool to wind. Yes, a familiar story in clean energy, higher upfront costs, but you are eliminating fuel costs, right? You're, uh, you, you no longer have to buy your fuel. And I guess I hadn't really thought about it, but it makes total sense that if you're a utility transitioning from operational and fuel costs to fixed costs of infrastructure, that's just better for you, right? Like that's how you, that's how you make your bones in the first place. Like, yeah. Those are the costs you you care about. Yeah, right. And you also get more revenue all the way through the year because you're not only having, you know, you're not doing just gas sales during the winter, but now you're having revenue through the summer too as you provide the cooling. So if, say, one of these Massachusetts natural gas utilities, you know, they build the test site, it works, they like it, they go for it. They're like, we're going we're gonna to go for it. We're going to do this over our whole territory. Is there enough money? Like, would you need any public subsidy to get started? Or do they have the resources to sort of start doing this incrementally and pay for it themselves? They have the financing model. And in fact, here in Massachusetts, there's a whole program for gas system replacement, which can be redirected to replacing the aging gas pipe with GeoGrid. And the, the funding structure would remain fundamentally the same. The, the customer building transition is really the biggest barrier to overcome in, in so many forms of electrification. And my hope is with this approach that not only are we doing it in kind of systematic street by street way, but the infrastructure can be considered to include the heat pump and the meter would go on the other side of the heat pump. So you covering with that utility financing, the cost of the heat pump, and it just makes technical or engineering sense because the last thing you really want on this infrastructure is a whole bunch of individually sized heat pumps. (laughs) Right, 
Right. And it, I mean, it is quite literally part of the infrastructure. It, it is. is what's it, you know, so it makes sense to include it in that same. And the last yeah. thing you'd want to do is go to a block and say, Hey, we want to do this. Can everyone go out and buy a ground source heat pump, <laughs> right. please? You're like, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll wait here. Like that would, uh, right. doesn't seem like it would work very well. How, how bespoke is it at, at, a, at an individual building level? Is there a lot of like, you know, the pipe coming up is pretty standard. The ground source heat pumps, pretty, is, is it just the size of the ground source heat pump basically that, that differs between buildings? Well, if, you, if you've got like a standard residence, it's, it's pretty plug and play as, as mm. long as you're not dealing with one of those antique steam systems in the distribution. But, you know, it's, it's great for a forced hot air distribution or a forced hot water distribution. But when you get to a larger scale building or a commercial building, um, then you may, uh, for example, want an, an array of heat pumps. You might want the option of having one heating and one cooling simultaneously, right. like so many of our buildings do. That said, you know, I'm sure that once they've done a couple thousand buildings, there will be some clear <laughs> patterns. And and this is what right. utilities are good at, is kind of operations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, the interface with customers. So one question I had is I know that there are out there in the world, there are ground source heat pumps. I know that there are out there in the world district heating systems. Is there out there in the world a geogrid as you envision it? Has anyone built one yet? There's one in Colorado Mesa University which uh, has, you know, interconnected sort of Lego block <laughs> components that over time have built a geogrid. With the spaced boreholes also, with the like uh, a bunch of small boreholes? You know, not too deep boreholes, but they're borehole fields as opposed to being in the right of way of the street. Uh-huh. What uh, Zainab has come up with, because it was Zainab's idea, a brilliant one, is of uh, the geogrid is what's called an architectural innovation where it's, you know, known components rearranged in a slightly different way. So in this case, the boreholes are, you know, as close as every 20 feet in the street. And it's, you know, ambient temperature, et cetera, and done by the gas utility, because that way you get the whole different, you know, you get a a gas utilities financing, it's customers, it's right of way in the street, it's workers, everything to move uh, the transition, the decarbonization method forward at a much greater speed and scale that we so desperately need. And I'll just, I'll throw in just because it's an important point. Uh, heat does not take any funding from gas utilities or from industry. That what we are is a climate solutions incubator. That's a, a nonprofit that we just try to figure out the best ways forward that do sort of systems change in hopes that we can make the future better for our children and grandchildren. You're not trying to get rich selling geogrids? <laughs> yeah. No. If so, we're doing a really bad job. <laughs> um, I want to circle back, David, no, to please. Colorado Mesa and tell a, a little short story. So, yeah, we, we drew this out on paper. And to be clear, I did it basically like, okay, basic thermodynamics. The physics says this should work. Oh, wait, you designed the one that's on this campus. No, 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 no. I, I designed... The idea for us is we're sitting here trying to figure out what to do to evolve gas utilities. And I we put out a feasibility study RFP mm-hmm. and we get on the webinar for the, for the feasibility study RFP and are kind of stunned, you know, 
quietly in a room in Massachusetts with the scale of people that show up across the world. Hmm. There was the guy who drilled the Chinese Olympic Stadium, the geothermal ground source heat pump world got word. It was on that call for our RFP that we had the most incredible gift. And that was in 2018. We met the folks that built Colorado Mesa. Carrie Smith was the engineer who designed that, coming up with the idea 10 years before we did. And (laughs) and he, being an innovative geothermal engineer, he actually knew how to put it in the ground and had the most beautiful data showing how incredibly it worked. So that was like the best gift ever. Um, And we continue to work with them today. In fact, we're hoping to come out with a pretty awesome case study sometime this year. So, so you come up with this crazy idea, throw it out there, and then someone comes forward and says, "Hey, I actually did this." Yes, and it worked. Yeah, <laughs> That's the, that is a nice, uh, a nice gift for a, an innovative idea. So that one's already been built. What's the status of sort of geogrids proper, as in utilities? You've tried to persuade to do it. Are so there the, the gas to geogrid transition pathway? Yes. Where is it? Well. Um, when we released that feasibility study, Bureau Happold was the group that that did that um, in 2019. In less than a year, Eversource Gas filed with our DPU, our Department of Public Utility, a request to demonstrate this. And it took a year, but they got permission. And that's the gas utility that's installing in Framingham, Mass. They've got a great video up. You should check it out on the website. And then a little after that, National Grid Gas filed in Massachusetts and requested four demonstration projects. And they just got permission in December and are moving forward, um, hoping to get the first and maybe second one in the ground next year. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, because there are a lot of states where gas utilities are seeing the writing on the wall of climate legislation, we have talked to over 14 gas utilities across the country and including in Canada. And there are some of them moving forward with feasibility studies right now. And, you know, there's there was in Philadelphia, for example, a process of looking at the largest municipal gas utility, PGW, and looking at decarbonization pathways. And the most popular one in some of the hearings was to demonstrate the geogrid, which they are moving forward with as well. To my ear... It sounds like a win, 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 win for the natural gas utilities. I mean, A, primarily, you get to survive, <laughs> right? <laughs> B, you could do something that people wouldn't hate and condemn you for constantly, right? Like, there's that. And then, you know, there's more more spending on infrastructure means, you know, better profits for your investors. It means more jobs for your people. It means a stable, long-term future for you as a business concern. What's the problem? <laughs> have you have it, has any of them come up with like problems that that strike you as legitimate or or reasons for for doubt? So I think gas utilities have always done innovation. You know, they've they've gone from being primarily lighting companies in the beginning when they were gas works to right. heating as, you know, electric light bulbs came in mm-hmm. to, to going from what's called manufactured or town gas, where it was made from gasification of coal to mm. natural gas to fracking. They've always innovated all the way along. And this is a new potential way for them to innovate to meet this future of, you know, a, a lower emitting or non-emitting country or world. 
but they haven't heard of the idea yet, <laughs> I think. <laughs> right. You know, we've talked to as many people as we can, as many gas utilities as we can, but they're large organizations. There's, you know, they have to get the regulators to agree to do it. Mm-hmm. It's, it takes a long time and a lot of people sort of fretting about it. So the more we can get the idea out, the more people can think on it, the more demonstration installations that we can have gas utilities do, uh, the more it will de-risk the concept for all, including the customers. I would just add that, yes, there is this history of innovation, and gas utilities are, by nature, a risk-averse business. And we actually kind of want them to stay that way. They yeah, are right. piping an explosive <laughs> gas around, right? And, and a utility is not structured for innovation necessarily. And so, yeah, I, to second Audrey's, it's a process. And really the biggest barrier to geogrid adoption seems to be just not knowing about geogrids. So there is an educational aspect. I keep trying to find the major flaw that I haven't seen yet because <laughs> um, I'm that way. And it really seems to be, you can put one of these anywhere. The question really is, is it cost effective? You know, if you're on a sandbar, do you have the thermal transfer that makes it make any sense? Yeah. I wonder how much soil, like soil composition uh, yeah. makes a difference. Like, I guess we don't really know yet until we. And there's a threshold for the density of, customers right so if you've got a mile between houses yeah, yeah i meant to ask about that earlier too what is do we know enough to know what that density threshold is with the massachusetts feasibility study it came out looking an awful lot like it matched pretty well uh to the existing gas utilities threshold you mm. know a gas utility doesn't go into rural america and pipe gas right the cost of the infrastructure to the ratio of you know customer distance seems to match pretty well so far, but I I think we need to do a lot more. I mean, there's so much research needed in this space. There's so much research needed in the entire thermal space. Right. One one thing that sort of occurred to me as I was trying to think through how this would play out is you can imagine something that would have, I think, been unthinkable not that long ago, which is the interests of natural gas producers and producing states drifting out of alignment with the interests of natural gas utilities, right? You can see them splitting. <laughs> yeah. We we hope it doesn't happen and that might be partly because you know a lot of the people who have uh, expertise for instance with fracking mm-hmm. would be extraordinarily useful in installing this infrastructure right. to do, you know, diagonal drilling and drilling underneath the streets so we don't disturb any of the pre-existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it is potentially a really interesting match and uh, for instance, the engineer that uh, Zainab mentioned before, Kerry Smith, the, he came from a gas and oil background mm-hmm. that who during the 1980s, when there was a gas emergency, he moved to geo. So this is something that, you know, the expertise is somewhat fungible from one to the other. Yeah, they know how to put pipes in the ground. Yeah. It's, uh, if there's one thing they know. So I've kept you forever. Um, Just by way of sort of wrapping up, I I like to do this at the end. If we let our imaginations run here and imagine, you know, geogrids scaling up, you know, so instead of talking about a block or a couple of blocks, you're talking about a whole town or a whole city. I'm wondering what, if anything, you imagine could come from scale 
Like, are there learning curves here where we could make it cheaper? Are there sort of emergent effects once you get a bigger network? Like, how do you, uh, what do you see happening as this, as this grows? I believe there's going to be efficiency increases up until a certain point and ease of optimization for the thermal management utility. I also am really excited that once we get to that kind of scale, we start to have opportunities to do thermal storage, Mm. not just adding a thermal storage site, heating, cooling on the grid, but also the entire system becomes a form of energy storage because all that water and bedrock, the bedrock is really allowing us to do asynchronous energy sharing over a seasonal basis. And the piece of building decarbonization we've really got to grapple with is that seasonal energy storage challenge. Right. So we're talking about using basically the shallow earth as a giant thermal battery. Yeah. And that Thermal battery could be, for instance, uh, if you have some wind turbines that primarily work more in the middle of the night when the wind is stronger, but nobody's using electricity, you can take that extra electricity and dump it into the ground as the temperature or into the shared loop of water, you know, adjusting for the temperature. So if your shared loop is running a little bit cold, you take the wind energy and you dump it in and heat up the shared loop, If you, you know, or vice versa. And I want to point out that the system, as it scales, will also increase jobs and keep the, you know, because there's going to be a lot of work needed in terms of uh, retrofits and buildings and installing the system. It'll allow the gas workers who currently, you know, operate and maintain the system to continue in their trade with the good jobs that they have. It'll improve the health for people, not only because the indoor air will be better from a lack of combustion, but also the outdoor air will have less emissions and excess deaths from that. Yeah, perhaps fewer explosions as well. Yes. I mean, here in Massachusetts, we have that horrible experience of the Merrimack Valley gas disaster. Um, But in addition, we will be doing electrification of the buildings by gas utilities And reducing the peak electric impact Mm -hmm. from that because the system is so much more efficient than during peak times than air source heat pumps. So it's it's a better future (laughs) that we can have at a lower cost, you know, for the customers. Right. In a sense, you're not only sort of like sharing uh, thermal energy around a network, you're also kind of integrating the thermal network with the electricity network and they're all becoming one big network. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can we can have different uh, ownership models. <laughs> That's a whole right. other conversation. But but yeah, you you can have synergistic support and resilience between a thermal grid and an electric grid. And that part that Audrey's talking about, where the increased efficiency. This so a ground source heat pump is currently the most efficient form of electrification, but a networked ground source heat pump goes a few steps further. And some of the initial sites are showing a system COP of six or more. Good Lord. And what's the highest, like like the air source heat pumps go up to what, three at the highest? Am I making, am I making I, I, that up? Some, I say two to four. It, there's, right. there's multiple studies out there. As far as we know, is there a 
a way of heating buildings of any kind that's more efficient than this? Or is this like Not that I as know. efficient as we've ever as we've ever seen? The only other more efficient thing is just turn off the heating or cooling entirely, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that higher efficiency means that as we shift from the chemical energy storage of fossil fuels for our winter peaks and our electric grid starts to carry that, we instead of switching from a summer peak to a massive winter peak with say, you know, a COP of one, two, three, four, if we go higher, we can lower that winter peak and not have to build as much wind and solar renewable energy to cover our electrification of buildings. Which allows us to go faster and for less cost. Right. So we can electrify faster and cheaper if we trim the winter peaks with efficient heating. Well, that's an amazing uh, world that you envision, <laughs> and it's uh, uh, it's so exciting that you've been pushing this long enough now that it's starting to get taken up. So I hope maybe we can uh, have the two of you back on in a couple of years when we have some geogrids in the ground to look at and assess. It will be so interesting to see how this how this evolves. Uh, thank you two for doing all the work to get this large stone rolling. <laughs> we are thrilled. And I just want to mention one last thing. The The Massachusetts legislature has put $5 million towards a, a geogrid research team. Uh. And that, so they will be uh, looking at the normalized data and you know making that data public, uh, doing best practices, et cetera, and figuring out what the scaled up impacts will be. So we hope from that, you know, to de-risk the system for everybody and make it so that we can all figure out how to use this system uh, in the best possible ways. Awesome. Well, thank you two so much. This is fun. I just, uh, I love what you're doing. Well, thank you. It was really fun talking about it. And we'll keep going and let you know where we get to. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.